looking at 1, Thess- 1 Samuel. So if you want to turn back there, 1 Samuel, and we'll start at chapter 4. And I want to ask you, what is God's will for your life? I'm sure you'd want to know, wouldn't you? Uh, God created you, he saved you. Surely he knows what's best for you. And so there are lots of Christians who want to know what God's will is for their life. And, and they often think of it a bit like this. Uh, they, they think that God has a specific will, a perfect plan for your life. If you discover it and follow it, if you get the right job, marry the right person, then you can hit the bullseye. Uh, of course, if you don't, uh, then you don't live the life God planned. And so I have met people who, who are sad. I, I, I know one lady and she is really grieved because she feels she didn't follow God's guidance when she was young and she married the wrong person and now she feels she could never live the life that God really willed for her. That's pretty tough. Do you know God's will for your life? Well, it's a good question to be asking as we read 1 Samuel because God is revealing his will for Israel. We've seen it a few times, haven't we? He reveals his will for Samuel. Uh, He gives Hannah, this humble humble Hannah, in response to her prayer, gives her a child and makes sure that child ends up in the temple preparing him so that he can be the one who hears God's word for Israel. That's God's will for, for Samuel. We quickly learn that. And meanwhile, we hear God's will for Eli and his sons, especially. He doesn't want those sons serving as priests anymore. He tells Eli, don't let your sons keep serving in the temple. He lets them keep serving. And eventually God says, well, in that case, I have to, your sons have to die. God is revealing his will everywhere. God has a plan for Israel. It's quite obvious. He's revealing his will. The question is, are people listening? So Eli certainly wasn't. Well, in chapter 4, things get worse. Uh, Because not only are people ignoring God's will, they're actually trying to impose their will on God. Have a look what happens. So Israel decides to go to war. Only problem is they lose. Uh, Partway through verse 1, chapter 4. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel. And as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. Now the elders of of Israel realize their defeat was God's will. But they have a, a strange response. They decide to take the Ark of Covenant into battle. Now the Ark of the Covenant, that that represented God's throne for Israel. So back at Mount Sinai, they were told to build this Ark. And what happened was that God would lead the people out into the desert, their journey for 40 years in the desert. God would lead them in the cloud. When they set up the temple, sorry, the tabernacle, and, and they'd put the Ark back in there, then it was like it was the throne room. God would return to his throne room and take up his seat on this throne. That was what the Ark of the Covenant was. God would lead, the people would follow, but now the Israelites drag God into their battle. Verse 3, when the soldiers returned to the camp, the elders of Israel asked, why did the Lord bring defeat upon us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. 
It's interesting, the Philistines know about what happened in the desert wanderings. They know about Egypt. And so they worry, verse 7, the Philistines were afraid. A God has come into the camp, they said. We're in trouble. Nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? And they are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the desert. So they tell each other to man up and they face the battle. And then comes the surprise. Israel loses again. And this time, 10 times the casualties. Worse, the ark is captured and as God had promised, Eli's sons die. Verse 10. So the Philistines fought and the Israelites were defeated. And every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The ark of God was captured and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. It's devastating but what's devastating to Eli and what's devastating to her daughter-in-law, Phinehas' wife, most of all is that the ark has departed from Israel. God has left the building. Listen to what the daughter-in-law says in verse 21. She named the boy Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel because of the capture of the ark of God and the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband, she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. So 1 Samuel opens with God revealing his will for Israel, but instead Israel tried to impose their will on God. Now when you think about it, they essentially treated God as a genie. You know the stories, don't you? Uh, you have this ma- powerful being and it gets trapped inside of some little jar and so you, you give it a rub and out it pops at the moments when you need help and it solves your problems, gives you what you wish. That's how Israel treating God here. And let's be honest, it's what we do all the time. Oh, I do it, I, I make plans, I start my work, I get all busy and then when things go wrong, then I turn around and I call out to God to fix the problem. I didn't ask his will when I started. I just want him to turn up when things aren't going so well. We do it in our prayer. We we sort of decide what we want for our lives and then ask God to deliver. James warns us. We we ask too often so that we spend it on on ourselves. God is not our genie. But when we pray to God, we don't pray to him as a genie, we pray to him as a father and you present your needs to a father so that he can work out how to meet them. You don't set the agenda and dictate what, he, what he'll do. And it's particularly important to learn in this case because God is self-sufficient. He doesn't need us. Uh, notice what happens in chapter 5. The Philistines think their God defeated Israel's God, so they put his ark in the temple as a trophy. Uh, People used to think Dagon was a a fish god. Um, It's probably a mistranslation. Dagon is the word for grain, and so it's most likely this is the god of fields and fertility. Certainly the archaeological evidence is that uh, Dagon was sort of the, as far as the Philistines were concerned, he was the head god, the, the top god. And that's what makes verse, uh, chapter 5 really funny. We're supposed to be splitting our sides laughing um, because the chief god's statue keeps bowing down to the ark and he, he can't even get back up into his place without a bit of help. 
Have a look at verse 1, chapter 5. After the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod, and they carried the Ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face, on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. But the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. His head and hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. It turns out God is perfectly self-sufficient. He doesn't need the Israelites to fight his battle. He can defeat the Philistine God all on his own. And as we read on, he defeats the Philistines all on his own. Uh, Just like he sent plagues on Egypt to rescue the Israelites, now he sends plagues on the Philistines to rescue his ark. Um, And it's all perfectly within God's power. In fact, there's another mirror. The Philistines send off the ark with gifts of gold, which is just like the Egyptians when the Egyptians left Egypt. Sorry, the Israelites left Egypt. They asked the Egyptians to give them uh, jewellery and gold and they left, they plundered the Egyptians just by asking. Um, God's done the same thing all over again. God doesn't need us. Even on his own, God is dangerous. I don't know if you've been seeing the ads for uh, one of the good omens. It's a a Terry Pratchett story. I used to have a a bit of a phase of reading Terry Pratchett. He's a, a very funny writer Um, unfortunately, he's a very strong atheist. And so uh, one of the books that I read uh, a while ago was Small Gods. And the whole idea behind this book is is that the gods really only have power when people believe in them. Uh, So the gods grow when when the people believe in them and then they shrink out into non-existence when people stop believing them. Now, Terry's Terry Pratchett's message in this book is all about the danger of religion. It's all the stupid things that people do when they claim to believe in God. And and in his mind, like many of the new atheists will argue, it's religion that makes people dangerous. Can I share share with you that there is something far more dangerous than people who believe in religions? And that is a God who doesn't need people. A God who has his will for the world is working towards his plans and purposes and you would be foolish to stand against him. The Philistines have learnt that lesson. Time and again in the Bible, a God fights his own battle. He is no one's servant. It's just so different from the ancient Near Eastern myths where God's sort of uh, they're made to serve people. That, that's the whole creation story, is about how they're there to meet the, God's needs. In, in the Bible, the God that we, who created this world, he actually didn't need us in the first place. He didn't make us because he was lonely, he was triune, he, he's got relationships within himself. He didn't make us to be sort of people to, to meet his needs so that he could go and have a rest. God doesn't need us. He's perfectly able to achieve his purposes on his own. That means you need to take him seriously. He is not someone to be trifled with. Because you can't fight God's will. God has a plan for Israel and that means he will achieve it. God's will for Israel plays out in the next chapter. So chapter 6, the ark returns to Israel the Israelites sort of haven't got it yet. They, they treat the ark as a curiosity. In fact, the people in Beth Shemesh, they try to look inside. And so God strikes them down. Verse 19. 
But God struck down some of the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, putting 70 of them to death because they looked into the ark of the Lord. The people mourned because of the heavy blow the Lord had dealt with them. What had the people forgotten about God? They'd forgotten that the Lord is holy. Look at verse 20. The people of Beth Shemesh asked, Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? To whom will the ark go up from here? God is holy, different to us. And he wants his people to be holy, to be dedicated to him, to to separate themselves um, from, from trusting in the things in this world and put their confidence in the one who made it. And it takes a a number of years to realize this. Initially, the people try to forget God, it seems. They leave the ark at Kiriath-Jerim. They try to get on with life, but eventually they turn back to him because you can't run from God forever. And so chapter 7, verse 2. It was a long time, 20 years in all, that the ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim, and then all the people of Israel mourned and sought after the Lord. And what do they need to do? What, what, what do they have to do? They have to be holy. They have to stop trusting in idols and put their whole trust in the Lord. Verse 3. Samuel said to the whole house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and asterisks and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. This sin that they've done, it's so serious God doesn't step in until they've offered a sacrifice. A lamb has to die to deal with their sins. So have a look. Verse 7, the Philistines assemble to attack. Verse 8, Samuel cries out to God. Verse 9, they make the sacrifice, and it's while they're sacrificing that God finally rescues them. Verse 10, while Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle, but that day the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them in such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. Interesting. The Israelites wanted to defeat the the Philistines way back at the start, but that was their plan. God does it, does it in his timing, does it so that his people return to him. That's what God wants. He wants us to submit to him, to, to, to recognize who he really is. Um, I'm sure you've heard that it's the 50th anniversary of the moon uh, walk, the moon landing. Um, I don't know if you caught this article, though. It's on the ABC. Um, Simon Smart is the author, and it's fantastic. It looks at, uh, it starts out reminding us that Buzz Aldrin, uh, who was broadcasting just before the moon landed, he actually paused and he took communion in space and read out on the radio um, part of John's Gospel, I am the vine, you are the branches. Uh, Simon writes in the article, at that moment, Aldrin clearly felt his own helplessness, perhaps dependence on a creator. And he goes on to say that this actually is quite a common thing, that when astronauts go into space... They, they find the whole experience disorientating, to see themselves in perspective in this universe, but the majority of astronauts respond by turning to religion, to God. Uh, so, um, to quote the article, Charlie Duke, the 10th of the 12 who made a lunar war- walk, 
was not unusual in unravelling on re-entry. According to Andrew Smith's book, Moondust, In Search of the Men Who Fell to Earth, Duke was so destabilised that he became a menacing presence for his wife and children for a time. Eventually, he found peace through faith in God. When men and women see themselves in perspective, when, when we actually appreciate what this universe is like and what God is like, a very common spot response, the right response, is to turn to God. That is finally what's happened here to Israel. The question is, has it happened to you? Because it's what each of us needs to do. God does have a will for our lives. He made us, and he made us with a purpose. I, I, I just want to drive this home. We have this major problem of depression in our world at this moment and for our young people, and I really think it's because of what we're, we're giving them in terms of a life. On one hand, we're telling them they can be anything, absolutely anything. Just put your mind to it. You'll be anything, and, and that just overwhelms with choice. And at the same time, we tell them, well, actually, what you do doesn't make any difference. Uh, this is a random world. There's no real uh, purpose, uh, no destination, things of value. And we wonder why our kids just struggle with finding orientation. God has made this world, and he does have a will for it, a purpose. And, and he's announced it in Jesus because years after the events in Samuel, uh, Jesus comes and he tells us very clearly what God is, God's agenda is. The very opening words in Mark's Gospel, Jesus comes and he says, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent. Trust the Gospel. So repent just means turn around, change your mind, and trust in the Gospel is, is, is trusting this news that the king has come and he's going to rule. He's defeating his enemies. Um, that is the purpose of this world, to bring everything under Jesus, to, to see the world serving him. Do you know God's will for your life? See, in one sense, I want to say, no, I don't know. If you want to say that, my, that God's will for my life is this, this bullseye that I'm trying to hit, I don't think we can know that as a general rule in life. You look all through the Bible, um, most of the time, God's people don't know his specific plan for their lives. So um, you've got Paul. He wants to go to towns and preach the gospel, but repeatedly God prevents him. Um, he writes a whole letter. The letter to the Romans is written with his hope that he will go to Rome and then from Rome on to Spain. And within a short time after that, he ends up imprisoned uh, under house arrest in Rome. And we don't even know he made it there. Uh, James tells us to make plans humbly, to say, if it's God's will, I'm going to go here and do there and, and make business. We do, shouldn't presume to know God's specific plan. And I actually want to push a little further than that. Because we go dangerously close sometimes. As we seek God's will, we start to set God's agenda. We start to do what the Israelites were doing. Have you noticed the sort of things we tend to ask God for? It's questions about uh, who we should marry, what job to get, what car to drive. Our agenda in trying to seek God's will is very much the agenda that the world has for our lives as well. God does have an agenda for our life. 
the, the Bible reveals it, reveals it really, really quick, clearly, and it's not in the areas that we expect. So let's just flip through some Bible passages about God's will. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 3, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual morality. We heard this passage before. God wants us to obey him. That's his will for us. To live godly lives. Um, Romans, 8, Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Paul is confident that as we understand the gospel, we will discover God's will. It, it flows out of being transformed in our thinking by the gospel. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Um, Romans 2, verse 18, speaks of God's will revealed in his law so if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you're instructed by the law Uh, the last one i want to throw in um i have deleted uh colossians (laughs) at colossians paul says he's praying that the people there might know his will and what becomes clear is what he's talking about is just understanding what god is doing in the gospel bringing the world under jesus that is his will if you understand that you know how to please him in every good work strengthened by the spirit god does have a will for our lives but don't think of the bullseye think soccer field so a soccer field has very clear boundaries. There are rules. That there's, a, there's an area you are to play in. If you kick the ball out of there, you are out of bounds. The ball is out of play. But within the soccer field, there's a whole lot of scope as to how you play the game. There's a lot of flexibility and ways to do it, and, and, and you've got freedom. Uh, God's will is like that. God has told us very clearly. Uh, he, he doesn't tell us who to marry, but he does say, marry a, a person of the opposite gender, preferably Christian, And then he has a lot of wisdom on how to then live in marriage and treat the person you're married to. Uh, God doesn't tell us which job to have, but he does call us to be faithful and work well in that job, to build good relationships, to be his witness. Uh, God does have a will for our life, but it is broad. It is a call to holiness. It is about how we live the gospel message. How we live the gospel message. But that's challenging, isn't it? Because if you're like me and you've tried to live the holy life and you you try and be a better person, I'm very good at failing. So before I wrap up, I wanted to bring out the other thing that we see very clearly in 1 Samuel, the thing I've mentioned before, and that is God is very good at fighting his own battles. If God's will for your life is your holiness... The good news is he will do it. He, he, he guaranteed because he sent his son to die for you on the cross. God will make you holy. When, you, when Jesus returns and you stand in heaven, if your trust is in Jesus, then God's will will have been realized for you because you will stand holy and perfect in him. God has already defeated sin through Jesus' death. The, the outcome is certain. So we can pursue holiness with confidence, trusting in him. You don't have to be the perfect person to get to heaven. Uh, God has defeated sin already. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, forgive us for trying to tell you what's important in our lives. Forgive us for treating you like a genie and demanding you follow our agenda. 
Please forgive us. Help us to see your will for our lives. Help us to see it on the cross where your precious son gave his life to cleanse us. Help us to trust him. Help us to live the gospel message. And as we seek good works that please you, please enable us to do them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, We're going to wrap up um, with the Lord's Supper and we'll close in song. But thank you very much. So um, the Lord's Supper, I mean, it's a great way to celebrate an anniversary. It was really good timing in that sense, uh, getting to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Uh, And it is just that expression that we both uh, receive the gospel message so we can give it and so we live it. Um, So the message we receive, it's a passive message in one sense. We, We are gathering to receive bread and drink to remember that Jesus has died for us. It's a work that's been done for us on the cross and and this act is just a remembering of that, a reminder. It draws our hearts to trust in the cross again. But it's also a reminder of where we're going. We're gathering around this table as God's people, trusting in him, knowing that he is planning to gather us again to be his people in heaven. So I've actually chosen to use Matthew 26 as uh, the words that I remember this morning. How about I pray and then we can share this meal. Heavenly Father, uh, please use this meal, this bread and this wine, um, to strengthen our trust in you. Remind us of Jesus and what he's done and by faith make the power of his death and resurrection real to us in this bread and drink. We pray in his name. Amen. All right, so I'm going to bring these round in one, one, so we'll just take it and eat it all together. Um, I just need to give you a heads up that it's actually not grape juice, it's apple and cranberry juice. So when you go to take it and there's a bit of a different taste, it's, it's okay. It's <laughs> Otherwise, you have a bit of shock. Um, but let me remind you of what Jesus did and said. So on the night before he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat, this is my body. And then he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And I pick Matthew 26 includes this. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on, until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. We look back, we look forward. Remember that he died to make us holy and that one day we'll be holy in his presence and sharing this meal with him. Fantastic news. I'm just going to bring the bread and drink round now and